Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's Podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. I got married first. I got an Academy Award first. Had a child first. If I die, she'll be furious because, again, I'll have got there first. These famous words of pure venom come from Hollywood actress Joan Fontaine, describing the lifelong rivalry and feud she had with her elder sister, Olivia de Havilland. And if you're a classic movie lover, you know, Joan Fontaine and Olivia de Havilland are familiar names. You might remember Olivia de Havilland in her role as Melody Hamilton in Gone with the Wind, or you might remember her starring opposite of Errol Flynn in the original Robin Hood Adventures. Uh, You might know Joan Fontaine from her roles in Gunga Din and Hitchcock's famous film Rebecca. You know, this is golden era Hollywood stuff here, classic figures who represent the glitz and the glamour of the early film industry. Uh, But these sisters were not partners at all in their mutual Hollywood successes. They were, in fact, bitter rivals for their entire lives. From the outset, their mother forced them into competition for her love and affection, which caused long and deep-lasting trauma. They would hit, they would fight, they would pull each other's hair. Olivia, the elder sister, would purposefully ruin her nice clothes as she outgrew them so that they couldn't be passed along as hand-me-downs to her younger sister. And younger sister Joan once recalled, at one point, she actively plotted a way to kill her sister and make it look like self-defense. And she came up with this plan at the mature age of nine years old. (laughs) So these two sisters did not get along. And in fact, this sibling rivalry continued on into their acting lives, which really came to a head in the year 1941, when both sisters were nominated for Academy Awards. And they were both up for the Academy Award, the Oscar, for Best Actress that year. And Olivia was the elder sister, and she was the Hollywood veteran, and she was expected to win. But the younger sister pulled off an upset uh, that Joan Fontaine won before her elder sister, Olivia de Havilland, did. And the story goes that as the younger sister went forward to receive her reward, uh, she was snubbed. She Excuse me, she snubbed her sister, her older sister, as she walked to the stage. Well, don't worry too much about that because older sister Olivia would win her own Oscar about six years later, and when she went forward to the stage, she returned the favor to her younger sister, snubbing her congratulatory um, hug in return. And, you know, some of this gets played up for, you know, it gets played up for publicity. Hollywood is never as extravagant or as depraved as it presents itself to be. But who hasn't expressed this kind of sincere, enraged anger or resentment at their siblings? Even those among us who are uh, only children, we've grown up with friends or cousins who fill in that same role. Uh, We all struggle to get along with these peers of ours who happen to share a chunk of our genetic code, or at least they share a chunk of our childhood. 
And my hope would be that even now you would be reconciled with your siblings and have strong and good relationships with them. But that doesn't seem to happen for everyone. I hope your siblings are a source of joy and strength for you. But if they're not, well, I can tell you, you are not alone. Jacob, as we begin to study his generations here in Genesis chapter 37, has 12 sons and one daughter. And if you got the email this past Wednesday that I sent out, you'll know that there's a bonus podcast about what happens with Jacob's one daughter, Dinah. And in that bonus podcast, you get a preview of the family dynamics that are to come because we learn in that passage from Genesis 34 that these 12 sons of Jacob, uh, we learn in that story that they're virile, they're hot-headed, they're unthinking, they're brash, they're headstrong. Uh, And we might expect our story today to start with some of the actions of these eldest sons, men we've been introduced to already named Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah. These are characters that feature more prominently in Dinah's story, but instead we are introduced to a different son, son number 11 of 12, a boy merely 17 years old named Joseph. And you know, that's actually been the pattern of our reading in Genesis, hasn't it? For reasons that defy the ancient historical conventions of pre-modern life, uh, Genesis, the book, wants us to see that firstborn children, I mean, they're really not all they're cracked up to be. In fact, God prefers to work with people who aren't the firstborn children, the secondborn and the thirdborn and the lastborn sons. He wants to work with them instead of the firstborn who you might expect for that them to work with God and vice versa to be the case. It's the younger child between Cain and Abel. Abel is the second, the younger child. It's him who presents God with a pleasing offering. And then when Abraham has sons, it's the second son, Isaac, instead of his elder brother Ishmael. It's Isaac who takes the baton of God's promises on to the next generation. And then it's the younger twin, Jacob, who God chooses to work with next. And so when Genesis 37 comes along and begins to talk to us about Joseph, son number 11 of 12 sons, maybe we shouldn't be surprised. The book of Genesis thus far seems to be a polemic against firstborn children. And this family hierarchy, the idea that children have a birth order and that means different roles for them, um, that pattern is how um, the context that Joseph is introduced. He's introduced in this context of, of family hierarchy. And here's how our text begins to tell us about Joseph. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He sent a boy with the sons of, he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So we learn two things about Joseph at the outset of our reading. Uh, Joseph is a tattletale, and Joseph is a daddy's boy. And neither are particularly flattering aspects of anyone's character, but especially when Joseph is ranked 11 out of 12 on the family totem pole, it doesn't really describe him as somebody you want to hang out with or get to know. Um, But let's dive in a little more on these two defects of Joseph's character. The text tells us that Joseph, son number 11 of 12, 
brought a bad report of his brothers to their father. Now, it's not all his brothers. It's just four of them, maybe, of the kids of Bilhah and Zilpah, two of uh, these other women who have been in the orbit of the family for a while, who are Jacob's wives. We don't know what causes the bad report. You know, maybe Joseph's brothers were goofing off while they were pasturing the flock. Maybe they killed a lamb and cooked it, but then told everyone that a, an animal ate it instead. Maybe they were abandoning the herd to go flirt with some Canaanite girls in the next town early uh, over. You know, we don't know the details here, but whatever it was, Joseph, age 17, he rats out his brothers to his father. I mean, we were all tattled on at some point when we were younger. Uh, maybe you were the tattletale yourself. I, I don't know. But this verse got me to thinking about why a tattletale is such a loathed character. We give them names like snitches and rat and traitor. On the one hand, a tattletale, right? When they when they do bring something forward, uh, when they do expose something, it's generally a, a true thing. There's a legitimate and true grievance to report. If I'm being tattled on to the bishop because I did something wrong... Um, it doesn't change the fact that I did something wrong, even if the wrong that I did was minuscule and perhaps not worth reporting. And you'd think such behavior would be welcome, right? When a tattletale brings something important or serious, we don't call them tattletales. If, if they bring something important to us that's important for us to look at, we give them titles like whistleblower or star witness, maybe even hero. I, I think here's the difference between a tattletale and a whistleblower. I think... The difference is whether this informant is looking to use the information to improve his or her own position with the revelation they bring to their authority. So a secret informant, you know, talking about the terrible unethical things happening at the bank or a whistleblower exposing government corruption, like we don't call them tattletales. But a kid ratting out his siblings for the attention of his parents or a student tattling on classmates to gain the teacher's good favor... Well, that is a tattletale. And so from the look of our text, because the text doesn't give us a whole lot to work with other than just Jacob filed, uh, excuse me, Joseph filed a bad report, the context here is pointing to the fact that this bad report, we don't know exactly the details in it, so it must not have been very important. And so Joseph is tattling on his brothers. And so not only is Joseph tattling on his brothers to improve his own position within the family, but Joseph is a daddy's boy. The text tells us that Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. And so Jacob, the father, throws societal convention out the window and bonds and connects and dotes on son number 11 instead of sons 1, 2, 4, 5, and the like. The idea of rank here is thrown out the window, this hierarchy, this birth order thing that was so important in the ancient world. And this favoritism culminates when the, the sun receives a, a robe of many colors. You know, it's 2021 now, and <clears throat> we have the Broadway musical stuck in our heads, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. But the Hebrew is a little more complex. It doesn't just mean that. Um, the, the text might mean something more akin to a robe of many colors, or a coat of long sleeves, or a richly ornamented robe. A robe that's just really pretty and well-appointed. And the style of the coat, yeah, okay, that's one thing, but it's not as important as what the coat symbolizes, what it means. Because, yeah, it symbolizes the Father's favor, but beyond that, 
robe fashioned in this manner was a garment for white collar type work in the ancient world. Let me explain. Because in the ancient world, you couldn't very well farm or go out shepherding livestock on the noonday heat with a heavy coat and long sleeves uh, heating you up and weighing you down. This kind of garment that is gifted to Joseph was reserved for occupations that were indoors in the shade, physically untaxing bureaucratic work. Imagine that Jacob's 12 sons are all lined up and 11 of them are gifted a new pair of overalls so that they can go work out in the field. But one son is gifted a three-piece business suit uh, from an from a Italian designer. That's the image we are meant to see in our reading. The, the coat is symbolic of, the coat of many colors is symbolic of white collar work. And it's also, at this point, the favoritism begins to strain the family in a way that's, you know, you kind of understand. Because the elder sons are looking at the other families and tribes and cultures in the region and they're thinking, you know, I'm the firstborn, or I'm the second or third, I'm elder-born son. In any other family in the world, I'd be getting the business suit. But here I am stuck in my overalls in the heat of the day while the tattletale suck-up gets paid twice as much as I do to fill out TPS reports and sit in the air conditioner and check Facebook all day. It's not right. That's what these brothers are thinking. Um, they're, they're, they're resentful of not just the, the favoritism of, of their father to this son who doesn't deserve it, but they're resentful of the, the, the life-easing consequences of that favoritism. And like, look, they have a, a point. Favoritism in this way, where a parent actively and intentionally chooses a favorite child and dotes on them at the expense of the others, like this tears family apart. It drives people absolutely crazy. It stays with people for their entire lives. Uh, you may remember that Jacob's own parents, Isaac and Rebekah, they chose favorites amongst their twins. That's in back in Genesis chapter 25. That's 17 Bible chapters ago from where we are today. So you'll be forgiven if you had forgotten that detail. Uh, but that favoritism uh, foreshadowed uh, 40 years of family dysfunction that led one brother uh, to wanting to murder the other. It foretells of trouble in this generation too. I was wrong. It was only 12 Bible chapters ago. Forgive my math error. We're looking at 12 Bible chapters ago that this kind of favoritism was foreshadowed as a terrible, horrible thing in the scriptures. So when our reading ends, Joseph makes a big mistake. Uh, we get to the end of our reading today and he makes a big mistake. He has a pair of dreams and in these dreams, he is the boss and he is the winner. He succeeds. He is the best. And in these dreams, everyone is bowing down to him. That's his brothers. That's his parents. It should lead us to no surprise when the text tells us then that his brothers hated him even more. And that's saying something because Joseph, at this point, uh, Joseph, uh, the brothers already can't have a single conversation with him where they speak peaceably. That has already been established. But then he get, he tells these dreams uh, at the breakfast table, and his brothers hated him even more. And in fact, it's so bad that Joseph gets a rebuke from his father when he, he shares this dream at the supper table. The father says this, What is this dream you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Right? This is a rebuke. He's like, what are you, an idiot? 
Um, But the text goes on. And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, why would his father take a mental note about this dream? Why would his father uh, keep this in mind, even after he just rebukes his son for sharing the dream out loud? Because Joseph's father, Jacob, has met with God before, and the avenue through which God has done some of his best work with Jacob is through dreams. Remember the vision of Jacob's ladder that came through a dream. This decision that comes that is made by Jacob to flee from his abusive father-in-law and return to the land of his ancestors, that came through um, God's instigation through a dream. Jacob knows that God can sometimes and does communicate through dreams. And so after he rebukes his son for speaking out of turn, of presenting himself as someone better and higher than his station, he decides to make a mental note of this dream. Maybe God has some divine intention for some number 11 out of the 12 sons of Israel. So on one level, you know, this coat of many colors, this uh, well-known biblical totem, this token of, of, of Old Testament favoritism, it presents for us, I think, a profound temptation. Who doesn't want their parents to give them such a blessed garment? Who hasn't wanted their ambition rewarded and their stature to rise as a result? Who doesn't want to, doesn't, who doesn't have a secret dream of everyone bowing to them? Right? The story that starts out with Joseph, our main character in these coming weeks, the story starts out with Joseph looking like a pretty bad guy. He looks like someone who's petulant, who's, who's trying to punch above his, his, his weight class, uh, someone who maybe has a little bit too much self-esteem, someone who thinks more highly of himself than he ought. And well, you know, I think he embodies something about us, about you and me and out, people outside and inside the church. He embodies a, a part of us that seeks out our own vainglory at the expense of others. The coat of many colors that he receives, it's a physical representation, I think, of a spiritual reality which is our desire for love and success at any cost. Because when we receive the coat of many colors, it's a deep and profound joy. But when others receive the coat of many colors, and we do not, it's gasoline on the fire of sin that is our jealousy and coveting human nature. The the, the picture of God uh, as Father is actually something better than this. It's something different altogether, right? Because Jacob the patriarch hands out coats of many colors, but um, that's not how our Father who art in heaven works. Because at the end of days, the image that the Bible gives us is that God is not in the business of handing out coats of many colors to his favorites while leaving the rest in tattered overalls. That's not the vision. The vision we receive, the vision revealed by um, to us through St. John on the island of Patmos, is that every single son and daughter of God is gifted not with a coat of many colors, but with a pure and undefiled white robe, a white that is brighter than any bleach treatment could give, and it's tailor-made for the size and shape of every saint. Coats of many colors are not what God hands out. Coats of many colors are for tattletales and daddy's boys. Favorites in a world where favoritism breaks families apart. The white robes, on the other hand, in Revelation, as John tells us, they are for those who are martyred, 
who are killed by the forces aligned against the work of God in the world. We tend to think that means people who die in a special way for being a Christian. They get a white robe, and the rest of us maybe get overalls. But remember, um, as our reading today Acts from Acts reminds us, God does not show favoritism, and God does not show partiality. Anyone who dies in the name of Jesus was killed by an enemy of the Lord, whether it's the world, the flesh, or the devil, a car accident, COVID-19, um, falling in a sewer manhole like the movie Soul that just came out from Disney, uh, Pixar. You know, if you die as a part of this world, it's because um, the world or the flesh of the devil, the great enemies of God, have come for you. And so the white robes that John talks about in the book of Revelation in chapter 6, if I'm remembering it right, um, the book, those robes are for anyone who has died, uh, who clung to their hope in Jesus Christ. So the coat of many colors, you see, um, those are for suck-ups, those who compete, who play their own successes off of other people's failures. Uh, the coats of many colors are the reward for those who view other people as stepping stones towards their own self-aggrandizement. White robes are for those who are loved unconditionally by the extravagantly gracious God of the universe, and they are loved apart from their success or failures, apart from their drive to be the best, apart from the, their resentments of other siblings' accomplishments. You know, Olivia and Joan, the Hollywood sisters, they were desperately competing for that coat. And it led to a lifetime of mutual resentment and petty media jabs, and eventually it led to their complete estrangement. Uh, they couldn't even get along at their mother's funeral in 1975. Olivia, the elder sister, continued to refer to her little sister by her uh, pejorative nickname Dragon Lady, even after her sister died in 2013. She still had this resentment towards her. And you know, Olivia died just this last summer in 2020. Um, their entire lives, these sisters, were spent uh, seeking after the coat of many colors, and they died apart as strangers as a result. And so, as we're introduced to a new family in our Genesis reading now, a family where son number 11 out of 12 feels forced to compete and assert himself, to grow his own stature and usurp his brothers for his father's love, I tell you, friends, do not seek the coat of many colors for yourself. Um, seek the white robe. The father who passes out all of these robes is the better parent, one who loves all his children well. You can have both the love of your heavenly father and share in the joys and triumphs of your brothers and sisters without wondering if their success means your failure, if, of course, you are wearing the white robe. That's why we can have Jesus Christ call us brother, literally a perfect older brother, says Hebrews chapter 2, and we don't stew in jealousy or resentment about what Jesus has done that we couldn't possibly ever do. Because the same Jesus Christ who rose from the dead in undefiled white garments has prepared the way for us to undergo the same resurrection for the dead for ourselves. If we had to compete with Jesus for our Heavenly Father's attention and affection, of course we would all be sunk. But instead, Jesus, our elder brother, looks out for us, giving up everything to take care of his entire family. And so friends, this morning, forget about the cloak of many colors. Seek the white robe. Be free of your jealousy. Be free of your need to be better than other people. 
gain a healthy family with God as your father and Christ as your brother. The white robe fits you better. You were made for it and it was made for you. You can wear it after Labor Day. You can wear it all year long, in fact. You'll never outgrow it. And you'll always be grateful and close to the Father who gave it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Pennsylvania.